1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast in Ukrainian studies. I'm your host, John Shetichka. Joining me today is author and writer Megan Buskey, who will speak with me about her recent book that is titled Ukraine is Not Dead Yet, A Family Story of Exile and Return. The book was published in 2023 by Ibadim Verlag Press. Megan, thanks for joining me today on New Books Network. It's great to have you.
0: Thank you so much for having me,
1: Megan. I want to start by asking you actually about your motivations for writing this book. Um, You follow; it's sort of based around the story of your grandmother Anna and her extended family, as you, as as they, I should say, um, really traversed the turbulent events of the 20th century in Ukraine, um, particularly in Staryava, but also outside of Ukraine in Russia in Siberia and the Gulag, um, throughout the Soviet Union, Germany, and then, of course, in the United States, where your book also takes place and where you're from. Uh, and the story that you tell sort of, it un- the story that unfolds, I think, is remarkable. And it's one that gives us an intimate view of displacement, of war, of collaboration, of migration, and the family networks and the intricacies of all these things that you tell along the way. And I'm sort of struck by it because much of what you write about are really sensitive and difficult topics that not everyone would want to share or make public. And um, I want to ask with that in mind, what compelled you to dig into your family's history and then after digging, why did you decide to write a book about it?
0: That's a, a really wonderful way to phrase and frame all of the, the things in the book. So I really appreciate, um, really appreciate that. Um, that. Well, the initial impetus for the book was really um, my relationship and my closeness with my grandmother. Um, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, it was the place that my grandmother and mother had come to after leaving the Soviet Union in the late 1960s. Um, I grew up kind of on the the with on the fringes of the Ukrainian diaspora. i certainly like went to Ukrainian church, went to Ukrainian school for a few years, ate more than my fair share of pierogies, um, and was exposed to like a, a lot of different Ukrainian cultural or features of Ukrainian cultural life. Um, but I wasn't really kind of my mother um, who had come from the Soviet Union. Um, I wasn't a particular partisan of Ukrainian culture. It was more my grandmother. Um, and so I didn't have as intense a diaspora upbringing, I think as some Ukrainian Americans do. Um, but I was very close to my grandmother regardless. And she, was, um, she lived very close by. She watched me and my younger brothers. Um, on a weekly basis, and um, she was a you know a really caring, dependable, um, loving presence in my life, um, but also someone that was um, obviously very different from um, from everyone else I knew. Um, I grew up otherwise, apart from the the sort of u- Ukrainian cultural exposure I had from my my grandmother. I grew up in a very American environment, very middle class, midwestern, suburban, um, and so this the culture she represented was, was quite foreign and exotic to me, um, which was as a child, I resented quite a bit because I didn't you know want to go to church. I wanted to like hang out and um, play Nintendo or play soccer or whatever. Um, but as I got older, that the, the richness of that became more interesting. But another thing was my grandmother was like a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, she had, very obviously experienced um, something very difficult in her early life in in Ukraine and the former Soviet Union. And that came out in a number of ways um, in in my childhood, just sort of seeing how carefully she was um, always managing like food and money. Um, how kind of, how seriously she took work. Like she would never, ever, ever take a sick day, for example. Like that was just something, that my mother is the same way. Um, And then she would also too, like she had these memories that she would share with us. And some of them were obviously just so, so dramatic about war, about her time in Siberia. Um, And they were kind of from a different, from a different world from a different era um but also very painful it was clear to to her and she would you know start to cry on occasions when she was talking about these things um and i think as a person who loved her that um the, the reasons for all of that were were very interesting to me were very compelling to me and it was it was one of the things that it was that sort of that mystery that drove me, I think, initially to become much more committed to understanding my Ukrainian um, heritage. Um, something that made my background a little bit different, again, from like maybe like the Ukrainian diaspora that uh, was established in the like in the after the war, for example, was that we still had a lot of close family in Ukraine, so um, I grew up knowing that I had aunts in Ukraine, that I had cousins, second cousins, etc. And there was this, there was this notion of there being these close relations, but there was also this distance. Like you, we couldn't talk to them because I was the '80s or the early '90s. Communication was very difficult, um, and there was always this sense of there was this other part of the family that was missing. And I think that that was also really um, intriguing to me. And it was the, the mystery of all of that that sort of led me to Ukraine in the first place, uh, wanting to unpack that, know that better. Um, but it even that was like slightly different than just undertaking this project, which I didn't undertake um, until um, maybe 10 years after I had first, first started going to Ukraine. Um, and it was really brought about by my grandmother's death. She died in 2013. Um, and I felt just this this intense need to preserve my memories of her, preserve what I knew of her life, which I had known to be so extraordinary, and um, you know, to document it for myself and for my own family. And I think um, that was kind of where I started to do the writing, and then really started to do the research. I think it was really kind of a way. It was it was a way to to mourn my grandmother a way to stay close to her when she was gone, because I was learning these new things about her life. And it was almost like we were continuing to have a relationship even though she was gone. Um, And that was really important to me. But then the research also sort of got its own life. And there was a lot that I found out about her life and also people that were close to her that was, was not necessarily what I set out to find. Um, But I did find it. And then once I started to see all of these pieces coming together, I felt like it was a really interesting story and that it could say something about what the Ukrainian experience was like, you know, particularly before and after or before, during and after World War II, but about the 20th century more broadly. Um, And I felt that by packaging all of that together, it could be helpful for people to try to 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 wrap their minds around what the Ukrainian experience was like through the through the lens of just one family so that's when I started to think about it as a, as a book project that could have um, more value outside of just something that would be for you know my family purposes or personal reasons
1: yeah I, I mean it's I think that's a an amazing way to describe it because I you know talking about, Writing this as actually like some form of catharsis as well to to remember your grandmother and I you know I love all the the stories and anecdotes that you tell about her throughout the book and you know the the frugalness is something that also you know sticks out to me of you know my own family you know my grandmother's you know from you know they check, Czech but still you know always having something on the table you know giving you loaves of bread in your fridge and you know always taking care of you in those those sort of maternal ways. Uh, I, I like all those those anecdotes and, you know, they sort of, at the same time, hide a very dark history that you navigate as you go through this. And your grandmother passes away in 2013. And then, of course, 2013, 2014 in Ukraine are monumental years with Euro Maidan, Revolution of Dignity. Um, and so you're sort of, you know, it, it, to me it was really interesting that you know you're sort of caught between this Americanness that you're growing up in Cleveland, and then there's this Ukrainian identity, which you said, you know, you're sort of on the fringes of a, you know, the diaspora, and you know, it's something I'm familiar with myself in the in the Czech context, and um, I, I know I think that's it makes sense to me that you'd want to go to Ukraine, and um, it, that sort of offers some answers to that side of the family that you hadn't explored. Which brings me to sort of my next query, which is, so you get this interest to go to Ukraine and you start going there, you learn Ukrainian um, and you, you know, like you said, you had family there. And I'm curious, what was it like when you started going to Ukraine and visiting your relatives in places like Staryava and, you know, these other little villages that um, a family member of you kindly, was it Vasil maybe who was driving you? All over you. He was a very patient man who drove you to all these different places around the notoriously bad Ukrainian roads, um, which you know here in Michigan is also trying to give Ukraine a run for its money on those bad roads. But um, you know, what was it like to go to Ukraine and visit these family members? And you know, did you feel some sense of connection to Ukraine when you got there? Did it feel like you were getting closer to whatever it is that you were after? Or was it also unsettling in any way? Or was it all those things?
0: Yeah, I would say it was all of those things. Um, I mean, I went, you know, for to sort of answer these family questions that had started to vex me. But I mean part of what certainly kept me coming back to Ukraine over and over again for so many years now, is just that Ukraine is a fascinating place and I quickly fell in love with it on its own terms in ways that don't really have anything necessarily to do with my family. Um, But I, I think it's, I've always found it to be just this laboratory of, um, you know, a society in the middle of a huge transition, like coming out of the, you know, the end of the Soviet Union, trying to kind of come to terms with the the failures of of the Soviet Union, but also trying to also remember what was achieved and accomplished during that period. I mean, that's that in and of itself is a tremendous task. And I think in Ukraine is probably the one where it's been the most fraught, where those were that, um, that 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 dialogue between what was achieved during the Soviet Union versus what, what failed was the sharpest. And so even just seeing that kind of play out in, you know, in the lives of people I knew in Ukrainian politics, which have for many years now have had this sort of Shakespearean cast. I mean, you know, uh, Zelensky is like by no means like the first um, captivating UK- um, Ukrainian politician. I mean, There, there were many before him. Um, and so I sort of actually got my own political education from watching Ukrainian politics unfold. I happened to, um, end up in Ukraine, uh, during the, um, during the orange revolution. And so was able to, to witness that tremendous event. And it was the first time that politics really seemed, uh, uh, alive to me and had real stakes. Um, I mean, that came from a relatively sheltered and privileged position, but um it was so engrossing. And um so I, I have always found Ukraine to just be just again, just so fascinating on its own terms. But I think in terms of what I felt like when I first arrived there, I felt, yeah, very uncomfortable. Um I had was not well-traveled at all. I'd barely been to Europe. Um, When I first started going to Ukraine, I was like 21, I think. And um, I was not prepared for um, the degree of difference between American and Ukrainian culture. I wasn't ready for the degree of poverty that was still very evident in the early aughts in Ukraine. Um, And to see it just sort of so clearly in the lives of, you know, my family and my friends, um I also felt just uh, a lot of it was very powerful to be there because I felt like I was coming as a representative of my family from the United States. I was coming as a representative of my mother and grandmother, who my Ukrainian family had had lost due to emigration and Soviet leaving the Soviet Union um, was a really serious uh, undertaking. I mean, you were basically cut off um, from communication. Um, with It was very difficult to communicate once that happened. Um, there was really no prospect of being able to go back. And so when my grandmother and mother had left in the 1960s, they really thought that they were, there was a good chance they were saying goodbye to their close loved ones for the rest of their lives. And to, to come as Um, And their emissary was extremely powerful for my Ukrainian family and was very powerful to me, too. There was a way in which I was very conscious of the fact that I, um, my presence was, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to say it, Um, that I was sort of, that my presence there and like my um, I guess that just that there were much bigger forces at play than just my desire to go to Ukraine, that, you know, being able to re- reverse this exile that my my mother and my grandmother had experienced by coming to the United States was really kind of a way of, I don't know, like um, changing the course of history in some way. I guess that sounds like way too dramatic, but yeah. Um, I just could feel that I was just part of this much, much bigger story. Um, I don't know if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it totally does. And I I mean, it's, it's sort of an unfair question in a way, because, you know, how you feel when you go somewhere is totally overwhelming, particularly like when you're out of your own country, I think. And, um, you know, I, as someone now, you've been to Ukraine so many times, you know, it's it's like a second home. And it's just, you know, I think that for me, it's a second home, too. But It doesn't always make going to that home easy. Um, And it is, it is, Ukraine can be that sort of intimidating force of history that hits you when you land. Um, There's a lot that there's, especially, you know, if you've read the books on it and um, obviously you have, you know, you cite a number of good historians in this book and you've talked to them, but there's a lot sort of, uh, of processing that goes into recognizing what you're walking into in a place like Ukraine. You know, it's. I I like the way that you talk about it in your book of like, you know, I think you just called it a labyrinth a while ago or laboratory. And you know, it is, it's, it's not just one thing and that's what makes it so enticing, but so complicated. Um, And so I think, I mean, I totally understand what you mean by that of like, there's just a swirl of emotions and feelings that go into this. And, you know, I I, I can grasp that from your writing and your book about confronting these different people that, you know, you've never met before. And some of them that, you know, your family that's older than you in the US probably hadn't met or hadn't seen at least in a long time. I mean, I love this anecdote where you go to Andre's house and, um, you know, he's nobody would think it was, was your grandmother married to him?
0: Yeah, that's my, Andre is my grandfather. So. Okay,
1: he's your grandfather. And there's, a, by the way, there's a very helpful family tree <laughs> at, the, at, at the beginning of this book, which I found myself referencing all the time to keep track of it. Um. But you go to, you know, his house and you sort of show up. And when you get there, he's on a walk and somebody goes to get him. And then, um, you know, you tell the story of what it was like to meet him, but you didn't want to tell your mother about meeting him because you were afraid, you know, of like what they might say about it. And then you sort of go through all these histories with your family of, you know, was he a good man? Um, You sort of go through these, these paths that you do, not just with him, but, you know, with others as well that are involved. And um, you know, I, I, I think that's, you just do this in a way where you talk about all these different family members and who they are and trying to construct them as people and as identities, you know, that you understand. And um, I think all of that goes into when you arrive in Ukraine and you, you have to go through all these emotional things to sort of get there. So I, I, I really thought that was wonderful. Something else I also think is really wonderful about this book is, although you are not necessarily a historian, you play a historian in this book. And, you know, I'm struck by the way that you gain access to information and people. And some of it obviously is helpful because they're your family. So they'll talk to you and you can do things like do oral interviews, it sounds like, and, you know, record these things but you also take on the very monumental task of going to Ukrainian archives. And I was sort of chuckling to myself when I was reading you know, your experiences and let's call them trials and tribulations of working in Ukrainian bureaucracy. Um, you go looking for clues and answers to, to these gaps in your family history. And you know, for those who are going to listen to this or are listening to this and haven't actually worked in Ukrainian archives, they are, they are a treat. Um, Some of my favorite people in the world are the archivists in Ukraine, but the bureaucracy can be insane, and you have to put in file orders, and they'll tell you that things don't exist, but they do, and you have to wait weeks, and you talk about doing some of these things to access files to your family members, um, particularly with regard to uh, Stefan Mazur, uh, who is a main character at one point in your book. Um, so first of all, I just applaud that you went into the archives and we're doing this kind of work because it's not easy. But I think it's interesting that when you get into the archives and you sort of talk about you know accessing information, not only from the Ukrainian archives, but from the ones in Poland, also, um, you know, you reference Yad Vashem and you work at the Holocaust Museum in DC, uh, you sort of put together all these pieces and you're able to sort of locate these files on on your grandmother's brother, Stefan. And what you find, I think, is quite interesting is that in the middle of sort of World War II in the 1940s, he's in the middle of all this between the Germans and the Soviets. Um, And you find out that he's part of the Ukrainian insurgent army, um, you know, part of UPA. And you write a really powerful passage in sort of the latter part of your book. And if you don't mind, I just want to quote it because it sort of knocked me back a little bit. The way that you are interrogating your own feelings about confronting your family's history in a very complicated time in Ukraine's history um, is something that I just, I, I find it sort of brave that you are able to share this and write this. And so I just want to quote it here and then ask you about it. So you write, quote, and this is after you've, you've looked at the files you've received on Stefan. You say, regardless, the file did show that, as I suspected, Stefan had played one of the critical roles in the Ukrainian police during the Holocaust, arresting people and sending them to concentration camps. The file showed that he did this faithfully and repeatedly. How many times had he marched someone onto a train bound for Auschwitz or Sobobor? How many people had he hunted? Now, this passage, when I read it, um, I just kept thinking how difficult that must have been to A, confront, and then be right because um, nobody wants to have to find these things out about their family. But one thing that I think um, is quite admirable of you to do is to write these things in your book. Um, there are lots of these moments in Ukrainian history that people do not want to confront. They don't want to talk about these. Um, and I'm wondering if you can sort of tell us what it was like to confront this history And understand your family's you know sort of place in it um so yeah i mean i just i guess i'm curious if you could talk more about how you felt as you sort of you know you talk about getting files from these archives at different moments you know after traveling to ukraine and then you get back and you have family members and friends who are sending photocopies to you and you're sort of piecing this together as you go and it's very difficult but you find out this information um and in a very contested moment in ukraine's history i mean this is something that is still to this day relevant in many ways uh you know and this is a moment that there's a soviet occupation and then a german occupation and a soviet occupation again and these things get raveled up very quickly um, but of course, you know, there have been now lots of texts and books written on UPA and OUN, and you talk to some of the, the great historians that work on these, such as, you know, Jared McBride and John Paul Himka, and, um, you know, these are very contested histories, as you know, but you're, I, I find it, I don't know what other word to say other than I find it brave and in, entirely admirable that you're able to write a passage like that and state that my family member was in this and took part in this. What was that like to do that?
0: So, yeah, there's so much in that question. Um, I think, you know, just in terms of like how I ended up sort of approaching this history, I got very interested, you know, with my my grandmother, I had a very sort of specific experience, but as a woman, like her... Thankfully, her um, exposure to the horrors of the war were, was more limited. She was exposed to plenty that was terrible, much more than I will ever know in my life. Um, but I became very interested in sort of the men that were close to her. So I looked very carefully at the lives of her first husband, whose name was Josep, um, her second husband, who was my grandfather, Andre, and then her brother, Stefan, and all of these men were you know born around the same time in like the either the late teens or the 1920s so they were kind of young adults when the war started and they were all involved in violence in some way during the war but were but were you know perpetrators of violence but were also victims And I was very interested in that um, just that complexity and um, to me, I think it was just the way that, these stories felt the most human. Um, It just, it, it didn't, it wouldn't, it couldn't make sense to me that a a person could be in this particularly difficult, these particularly difficult circumstances, like not have to make a bad choice, I guess. Um, But Stefan in particular uh, was very interesting to me because he was such a, an important figure to my grandmother um you know when when i was growing up there was this portrait of him in her house he looked so young so handsome so kind of upstanding um he had died it was clear during an in connection to the war and it was his death i think that kind of brought about the most sorrow in my grandmother when she would speak about her early memories and um you know, there was a sense that he had died tragically and in ways maybe that she didn't quite understand or that, you know, weren't clear. And so as I, um, you know, started to really research her life, I became really interested in trying to to understand what had happened to Stefan. And one of the first kind of most important early clues I got was that I think within like the, a couple of months after my grandmother died, I was just like Googling around as one does. And, you know, I was Googling in like different languages, just sort of like looking around to see what I could find. And I was Googling about Stefan and I first, I think it was in English. I was like, yeah, in English. And I was just putting in some keywords and I found this. It I clicked on a link and it took me to an entry at Yad Vashem's library. And there was a photo of a man that was wearing a, a uniform and it, it said Stefan Mazur. A Ukrainian war criminal, um, and the man in the photo looked similar to my grandmother's brother, but there was not enough like identifying information. There was, you know, no, no, no way to know much about this person um, or who this person was but it was a very big flag. Um, but then I was also thinking like St- Stefan Mazur is actually a pretty common name. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not that unique. And so I was like, it's, there's a lot of probably blonde Stefan Mazurs um, in, in, or that were in Ukraine at that time. Um, but it was still a flag. And I, I could feel it in my gut that there was something that I, I needed to pursue um, around that. And so um I did do, like, as you pointed out, like a ton of archival research I had. Um, I really enjoyed it. I I, want to give a shout out to the Ukrainian archives for, um, especially as a foreigner, I was able to do, make, you know, so many requests and they were responded to so diligently and in such a professional fashion. Um, I was, it was actually quite better than the, like, the work that I was doing with some of the American archives where you would like send a request and just like never hear and just like lose track, not sure what, what happened with the request. Um, so especially after 2015 and, um, you know, the, the opening up of the secret police archives, it became much, much easier to access this information in Ukraine and I, I really benefited from that. So I did plenty of work in person too with the help of, of relatives. Um, so but to, to get back to Stefan, yeah, I did find you know the the incriminating information that I, I got about him um, was it was via archives and to answer your question of what it felt like and to to get the confirmation of this, um, to get the confirmation of, you know, in his case that he had been a um, a member of the Ukrainian police under the Nazis, which was a terrible thing to be involved in. It was directly, you know, involved in rounding people up, sending them to, to concentration camps and. Um, in there, I found a file in which he was acute, this sort of war crime accusation had to do with him shooting somebody that he was supposed to arrest and take to to Auschwitz, um, and actually the man escaped and survived, so he was outwitted. Um, but there was, I guess, the, the notion that he shot at the person um, instead of I don't know if trust trying to take the person peacefully. I'm not sure. I actually never really figured out kind of what the 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 conditions of the war crime accusation were. And in any case, it ended up being um, closed in Poland because um, I guess there wasn't sufficient interest on the on the part of the Polish government to pursue it. And he by that point, in any case, had been like dead for 20 years, Stefan. but in terms of this question of like what it felt like to to find out this information, um, it was incredibly sad. Um, I think especially because I had known so <clears throat> so much from my grandmother, like what a loving, caring person he had been to her, and to think that you know his promise and these capacities were were twisted or were lost um in in the middle of this this war was incredibly uh, like again the word that just comes to mind is is sad um and I think it was also, And I I think of these, that that photo of him as a young man before any of these atrocities took place. And I think about like the life that he could have had and most likely would have had if like the war had not happened in that region. Um, And I, I, I just feel just an ache for him. But then I also think about, you know, I try to imagine... The faces of the people that he enacted some violence towards. And, you know, another part, I also look very carefully at his his record as a member of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. He was in the SBA the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was another really, really bad thing to be involved in, and was um, essentially accused of being part of a group of of men that killed Ukrainian civilians, including women and children. And I think about like the faces of those children. I don't know who they were. I don't have visual faces, but I, I when I think of the sadness of what the loss of Stefan's promise, I also feel like it's really important to think about the the consequences of the violence that he enacted to, and I don't know the the way to kind of resolve the tensions of those feelings. I don't think that there's an easy way to do it. Like this is this is not easy work. It's not supposed to be simple. Like it's not supposed to be um, clear necessarily. Um, and and that my my motive as a writer was not necessarily to 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 provide ultimate resolution to what the 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 tensions of the of both of those ideas, um, but I do think that there is it is important, and I totally agree with you. It is so important to to state it and to say this is what happened, um, and to own up and I mean not own up to it, but to to recognize. Um, Everything that kind of happened in Ukraine um, during the 20th century, including like the the roles that you know my family played in in that.
1: Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone, for and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No, I, I, I mean, thank you for that. And it's, I, I, I mean, I can only imagine how emotional it is. And I, I think that, again, I'll say it again. I, I think the word that comes to mind for me is just, it's brave to do this. Um, and I'm grateful that you did it because I, 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 there are... <laughs> This is, you know, the the period that you write about in this book is one of the most complex in the 20th century, really. Um, And I think if anything, it's a reminder that people are never just one thing, um, that people have multiple identities. And, you know, it's good to explore these and know what happened and sort of live in truth, right? Um, And I I just, I, I think it's remarkable. Like, it's not something that should go unnoticed. And the fact that you were willing to stake, you know, your family in there and, and blatantly write about these things without giving sort of a diagnosis or a resolve, but just admitting that it happened um, is a really important first step. And I think something that I'd like to see more people, you know, be able to do. And um, it's just extraordinary because, uh, you know, your, your story could have, you could have written this book without telling that story. You know, no one would have known, but you didn't do that. And I, I just think that's remarkable. So, uh, I, again, I know it's very difficult to talk about, but I wanted to point it out because I think your book does what it, it speaks to the silences that so many others are not willing to engage in. Um, so, you know, sort of thinking about you talk a lot about the history in your book and the personal and you bring these together a lot. I was wondering, you know, this, um, from what I understand, started out as your MFA thesis the this book yeah uh, at goucher is that right goucher college yeah so i'm wondering if you could talk about i guess i'm curious to know actually was this always going to be um as historical as it was or as personal as it was did it start out in a, a different way I, and i'm curious if you could just talk about sort of how it evolved from your original you know conception of this when you were writing it for an mfa and then sort of how you thought it needed to be changed or adapted or how it needed to evolve um, to get into what is now your book.
0: Yeah. Well, I um, I think I actually initially would have loved to have done it as kind of more of a, a straight history because um, I do love the history. I think that is clear um, in the writing and I loved the research. And if I could have created a narrative that would have had sufficient fullness Um, I think I would have liked to have done that. Um, but the thing is like with these kinds of stories, um, you're never going to be able to know enough and to, well, you could, I suppose you could do it, but I didn't feel like I would be able to know enough to be able to like, just sort of take myself out of the narrative as the, the organizing thread and just sort of tell this story from a third person perspective. And so it, it was kind of the 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 gaps necessitated that I bring myself into the story. So it wasn't really and necessarily intended to be kind of like a memoir, which is somewhat how it feels. Um but I would also say that like part of my, you know, impetus in wanting to do this was to really wreck it on a you know personal level and on a historical level with these gaps and you know, with these silences and my family story and Ukrainian history in general. And that was sort of a personal undertaking. So maybe I would have had to have <laughs> inserted myself into it in some way, um, regardless, just because of the depth with which I really wanted to engage with those questions. Um, but Uh, I think there's something else I wanted to say about your question, but I forget what the other thing was. Mm, It's a thesis. Um, Revisions. No, I can't remember it. Sorry, I might remember it again. (laughs)
1: No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I it's I was just curious, you know, of these things always adapt, and I'm sure you envisioned it sort of one way and then expanded on it in difference. And it was, I mean, i I thought it was really great to see the personal and historical intertwined. Um, it reads well, it's accessible. and i and I'm sure that was intended on on your part as well.
0: yeah, I will say like one thing that I ended up leaving out, which I now regret is that I had planned a chapter more towards the end, which was like kind of a, a fuller look at kind of the Ukrainian um, Ukrainian efforts to uh, kind of remember this difficult past currently. And I get into that a little bit, but I've spent time with a number of like really remarkable Ukrainian historians and kind of activists um, an art curator in one case who are doing such interesting work around trying to think very carefully about how Ukraine should be talking about this, this past. And um, I had a lot of material drafted and I ended up not including it in part just because I, I needed to sort of wrap up the book and it was just sort of like a timeline issue. But I do regret that because I think it, the memory culture in Ukraine is really interesting. I think it's really being changed I don't know if it's being changed, but it's in a, diff- a very different position now because of the war. And I then it was when I was writing this book, for the most part, like the the discussion around, you know, the complexities of Ukrainian history is pretty fraught right now. And in, in, in the number one reason being that the way that Putin instrumentalizes um you know, Ukrainian kind of collaboration with the Nazis, um, other kind of aspects of its history um, that are, are 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 difficult. The fact that he uses those things in such a in such a way it makes it very difficult to to talk about those things without starting to feel like maybe you're you're giving him some um, credentials or, you know, giving him some support. Um, and that's something that has been somewhat difficult for me as I've been thinking about bringing this book out into the public. But I also think that, you know, the truth is never really convenient. And I also think that like nuance is always, is, isn't, is always a good thing. Um, in any the 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 solution to that problem is not to not talk about it basically (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) um i don't know what the solution is but it's not to like shut up and not saying anything um so but that said there is you know there is a particular um this is a, you know, a very specific moment to be talking about these things that's somewhat problematic. I
1: don't like how I said any of that right now. But <laughs> no, I, I, th- I think you said it well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fair point, right? Um, you know, we've learned a lot of things about Putin throughout this war. And one thing is that he's a terrible historian. He likes to pretend that he knows history well, but he doesn't. And um, you're exactly right. There are things from the past that are in conversation right now, but they're also abused heavily and, you know, um, cherry picked and, and, and changed. And so, it it is it is difficult, right? To how do we talk about it without giving him something? These are these are conversations, and it's good to be aware of that. Um, but you know, I, I I think nonetheless you do a good job with it. You know, in speaking of sort of how you conceived this book, I wanted to ask you actually about the book's title. Uh, Ukraine is not dead yet which of course comes straight out of Ukraine's national anthem, uh, you know, based on the poem written by Pavlo Chubinsky in 1862. Um, why did you decide to use this for the title of your book? And is it supposed to give us is there some symbolic meaning that we should take from it, do you think?
0: Yeah, it operates on multiple levels, and as does the subtitle, which is a family story of exile and return. Um, so you know, when I titled the book this, it was before the invasion started. And um, unfortunately, like it's, it didn't feel like very true to life. It felt like this question of like Ukraine, you know, Ukraine sovereignty, for example, like well, how, how could it be disputed? Unfortunately, now it has a very literal residence, which is, um, which is meaningful. Um, so it does have that read, um, but it, It was meant to also function on a sort of symbolic level in terms of, you know, um, expressing, you know, my, the role that I had in sort of keeping this connection to Ukraine alive in my family. So this notion of you coming to the United States and leaving behind this, you know, the the country of origin, you know, it, it was a statement in which... And it, it was a statement that encapsulated the fact that like that connection wasn't broken for, for me. Um, and then it was also kind of a reference to my, my grandmother's experience in Ukraine and the way in which Ukraine never left her, even though she ended up um, leaving Ukraine when she was 22, when she was deported to Siberia, um, her early experience in Ukraine was so formative to her her being in, I think, good and bad ways. I also wanted to, um, I also felt like the title uh, encapsulated that as well. And then the subtitle to this this notion of exile and return refers to the number of characters in the book that experience this sort of distance from some place or some kind of family group but then also is able to return to it in some way. Um, And there's a a lot of instances of that across the book in in terms of my grandparents being deported to Siberia um, from Ukraine, um, my my grandmother and my mother coming to the United States and sort of leaving behind the Soviet Union, um, the fact that my great-grandfather had actually come to the United States before World War II, and was always essentially living in exile, um, and it was only when my grandmother came to the United States that she was able to like return to this family structure of, of knowing her father, who she had she had last seen when she was four years old. She didn't she didn't see him between the ages of four and I think forty one or forty two. Um, so there's a lot of really powerful moments of of you know exile and return and unfortunately this continues to the present day and there's um you know in the book there is um some discussion of like what my fam the consequences of the current invasion have been for my family including the fact that some of them did leave ukraine as refugees in the early months of the war and what it was like to kind of um have experienced that family separation which is unfortunately so common in Ukrainian history or u- recent Ukrainian history. So the title the subtitle is also meant meant to kind of operate on multiple levels as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's great. I I love that you have a history for the subtitle as well. You know, these things are are really powerful and I suspect it as such. um, You talk a little bit about Ukraine is not dead yet and sort of the conclusion of your book and give us, you know, some things to think about. And it does resonate with the current moment. And that's actually where I sort of want to finish today is um, I just want to ask you kind of about the relationship between your book and this current war. and, you know, despite all of the things that your family went through in the 20th century, despite all of the, you know, the horrific things that you write about in your book, to me, I also found a lot of hope and determination. And I sort of want to, you know, conclude on a happy note, uh, because, you know, we don't always get to do that when we're writing about Ukrainian topics, but there's a lot of love and a lot of happiness in Ukraine, more so than that, I would argue, of course. but. Um, I think something that sticks out to me, and speaking of your title, is I, when I finished reading the book, I couldn't stop thinking about the concept of resilience. And I, in many ways, like that's what I think your book is about for me. That's what it came down to, of people go on. Sometimes history forces you to go on, but people are resilient. I think about your family that was in Siberia, and then you tell these little great anecdotes of... Um, they're flying on the plane to the United States for the first time and they try soda for the very first time and the flight attendants are sort of doting on them because, you know, they don't speak any English and these these young girls are just having a great time and learning about different things in the world and um, people persevere. And so, I mean, you talk about the war, you actually start the book talking about February 2022 and you end the book talking sort of about um the war and your family and Um, you talk about a family member of yours, a cousin, Natalia, who, um, ends up having to leave Ukraine with her kids and separates from her husband. He stays behind, of course, but helps them get on a train and they go to Italy and you end up going to Italy to meet with them and, you know, see them and check in on them, um, And again, you know, her story is like it resonates for so many Ukrainians right now that have to pick up their lives and their family members and leave. And they're making these impossible choices that you talk about throughout your whole book. So I just want to finish by asking you, um, I want to ask you what lessons you think we can take from your book and your family's story as we sort of think about the future of Ukraine. You know, what do we carry with us from the resilience And going through hardships, but also overcoming these hardships. Um, To me, your your book speaks volumes about how people do this. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, what lessons you think your book offers for us as we look forward for Ukraine, as we sort of hope for, you know, um, this war to come to an end as soon as possible, and then also for, you know, prosperity in Ukraine afterwards. Um, Do you have any words on that?
0: Yeah, I think my, I mean, one thing that I've observed, and, you know, as you're saying that, and I I sort of, I think about just, you know, in my own family, like, kind of like how, like, kind of hardworking people were. Um, And I think about, you know, like, talking to my Ukrainian relatives now, and, you know, a lot of them with the electricity attacks and so on, that's there's a lot of inconvenience to say the least in Ukraine, every single part of Ukraine, but there's not like a, like I don't hear them complain and there's like a real commitment to trying to like live kind of as fully as possible, despite the, despite the, the setbacks, despite the hardship and um, also a lot of ingeniousness, which I think is a kind of a hallmark of Ukrainian culture. Like I was talking to my cousin's daughters a few weeks ago, and they were showing me like this alternative lighting structure or, or infrastructure that their dad had set up for them. So like whenever the lights go out, they just kind of like hit this like switch on the wall and there's all of this battery powered light and it's they can just kind of carry on per usual. Um, and I think that that's uh, really beautiful um i think it exists side by side with a lot of suffering for every ukrainian right now and i think it's important not to lose sight of that of the psychological stress of living in a country that's under um so much strain um where everyone knows someone who's fighting everyone knows someone who's been killed or has lost their homes or whatever i mean just it's it's unrelenting i think from from what i observed from afar um but it's you know along with this this real um sort of unwavering commitment to to living as as fully as possible as i've as i've experienced it um or as i've observed it um and i would say like on the topic of resilience in my my own family i think i I had like this really kind of re- this remarkable experience going back so and sort of tracing the lives of these people so closely. In some cases felt like I got to know them quite well, despite maybe never re- even really knowing them, like my great grandparents or my great grandfather, Mikhailo, who I mentioned before, who had come to the United States before World War II and was here throughout the whole war, watched as like his his community got swallowed up, his family Was swallowed up by the war and he didn't know i think for very long stretches of time what their fates were and and yet he was so devoted to this idea of trying to find them and trying to bring them to the united states um and i saw found in the archives just the paperwork he had submitted kind of begging various soviet officials to please like give his wife an exit visa give his daughter an exit visa um and i think there is a way in which i can feel that, I mean, I, he died when I was three years old, so I don't know him. I don't have any memories of him, but I, I feel like the foundation of my life is built on that love that he showed by so being so steadfast in his commitment to his family. Like so much of what I have is because of what he was able to do for them and I, I feel that and I see that in my life in a way that I never would have been able to had I not done this book of just sort of knowing the sacrifices that people made for you before you were born before you were even an idea like he didn't had no idea that he would have like a great granddaughter that would be kind of embarking on something like this, or like living in this kind of like full, you know, American life, but he was doing as much as he could to sort of give those possibilities to his children, to his grandchildren and, you know, to subsequent generations. And I um, feel those, feel the, the, the benefits of that in my own life in this way that I think is really beautiful. It doesn't exactly speak to resilience, but is is something that for me has been so um, important coming out of this project.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's a beautiful place to end, I think. I mean, on love, it conquers all. Um, Megan, thanks so much for talking with me today and about your new book, Ukraine Is Not Dead Yet, A Family Story of Exile and Return. Pick it up now. Give it a read. It's a great book. Megan, thanks again for joining me.
0: Thank you, John.